All right, all right. Well, hey, Overlake, it is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team, and you might want to go ahead and grab your notes out of your handout as you're grabbing a seat. And um, what I want to say is that today we are in for a treat. Many of you know that I've been working for a while on some concepts that you've already heard about. For example, outlandish love. That was uh, a conversation we had last Sunday, if you were here, and things like gracious space and beloved community. And, and, and what you need to know is that, uh, that I'm not alone in sort of trying to walk this road and develop these ideas and create this culture, that uh, working with a group um, th that involves our leadership here at Overlake, uh, specifically Pastor Josh and Pastor Pat, as well as uh, the, the leader who's coming to share with us today, uh, James Whitfield. Now, now, James, this, real, real quick, let me, let me introduce James to you. James um, is the CEO of Leadership Eastside. And before that, prior to that, he was a White House appointee in, uh, during the Bush administration. But more importantly than that, he's an elder at Overlake Christian Church. All right? And, uh, and he has served in that capacity with excellence for over a decade. Uh, he doesn't care uh, that you know any of that. What he cares about is that you know he is husband to an amazing wife, Kristen. That he is, yeah, exactly. Uh, that was somebody other than Kristen who just uh, shouted, so yeah. And, uh, and then he's, he's father to two incredible young adults, Kat and Deuce. And, and many of you know his family. Many of you know James. What you, what you need to know is he is a dear friend of mine as well as wise counsel to me always. So would you just give a warm Overlake welcome to my friend James as he comes and shares with us today. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Um, Mike's awesome. Thanks for being a beacon of headlights uh, to take us down a dusty road through the fog and the, just the goo, the stuff that makes it hard to see uh, the right way to go. And uh, I just, I love you so much. Why don't we pray and get started? Uh, Lord, thank you uh, for the opportunity to, uh, to be here this morning. And I, I know that um, nobody wants to just hear some words uh, from a page, Lord. So I just, I ask that um, you get me out of the way and, and you make sure that what you want said uh, gets said this morning, Lord. Uh, we just thank you so much for your presence uh, here with us. Amen. All right, so I am really excited uh, about the opportunity to be here with you today because we get to talk about a topic uh, that I am a fan of, uh, which is an idea called Beloved Community. Now, um, one of the reasons I'm excited about that is because uh, this came to prominence primarily because of the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and, um, and we're celebrating his holiday tomorrow, so, uh, so it seems like a good time to talk about it. And, uh, well, a lot of his work was, was, was focused on uh, creating a better America through desegregation and civil rights work. He was ultimately working towards uh, a much higher goal, uh, a, a kingdom goal, a society where people reflect uh, the love of Jesus to one another. So we're going to use that as our definition, actually, of a beloved community. And if you want to follow along in your notes, that'll be your first fill-in. Um, beloved community, it means people reflecting the love of Jesus to one another. 
Now, that's a pretty high bar. Um, and it boils down, it comes down to a verse uh, in the Bible that it really sort of boggles my mind. Like, it, it, it really shakes me. And I find myself thinking about it a lot. Now, there's lots of cool things in the Bible, right? Like, there's um, let there be light. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, the in- incredible history of Israel and, and the life and death and resurrection of, of, of Jesus, insights into the future uh, in the book of Revelation. There's lots of very cool things in the Bible. But, but for me, there's just this one this one thing that really just grabs my attention over and over and over again. And it's, it, it, it's, this, it's, it's, found, it's, a, it's a verse found in the book of John. Jesus is talking uh, to his followers, and he says, a new command I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Uh, this is Jesus. Like, he came to reconcile all things through him to God. He, he, he came to fulfill uh, the law and the prophets, all of the previous commands. Like, he fulfilled all of them. And then, and then he turns to us and he says, I'm going to give you a new command. And that command is, you see how I loved perfectly? You see how I reflected God's divine, eternal, agape love? That is my command. You are supposed to do that. And then he goes on to say in the next verse that that's the way people are going to know that we're his followers. It's because we love people the way he did. And this is why I get so rattled by this verse, because I have to ask myself every day, am I loving like that? Would anybody know that I am a follower of Jesus by the way that I love? Because it's the only new command he gave. Right? This is the command. Love people the way that I love you. Well, it's, I'm happy to report that the leadership of this church is on a journey to figure out what that looks like, right? To become more and more of a group of people who reflect Jesus' love to one another. To become more and more of a beloved community. Now, that journey has taken uh, some of us all the way to the birthplace of our faith the Holy Land, Jerusalem and Palestine, Israel and Palestine. And so we had a chance to, to go visit there in early 2017, 2017 and, and, and you've probably heard this before, uh, but going there really does help make the Bible come alive. Like there's certain, certainly things that I, I knew and appreciated, but they were sort of just words to me. At, at one point, I was sitting on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus sat and wept. That's where he was before he was taken by the authorities and crucified. And and I was looking across another set of words, the Kidron Valley. 
the holy city of Jerusalem, where he would have seen it. And, and, and I was just thinking, like, this, this, is, this is alive. Like, this is real. And there's another mount not very far away from that mount where Jesus gave what some call the greatest sermon of all time. The Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is captured in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you haven't read it for a while or maybe you've never read it before, I encourage you over the course of this week, uh, maybe find some time to read it, pull it up on your phone if you want. Um, and, and so what, what's happening here is that Jesus has this crowd around him, and he begins to teach them with this list of things that are called beatitudes. It's a fancy word. It simply means blessings, right? There, there's these phrases like blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, right? And, and he gets to, to, to verse 9, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Amen. And, and, and if you were here with us last week, that phrase, children of God, should ring to you a little bit, because Pastor Mike talked about uh, a, a, another verse that has that phrase in it. Uh, it's the, the, the disciple John read, uh, writing towards the end of his life, and he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And, and that phrase, dear friends, is sometimes translated to the word beloved. So this verse gives us an insight uh, into beloved community. Love, go, love comes from God, and when we beloveds and peacemakers reflect that love to others, we will be known as children of God. So this is beloved community, right? It requires us uh, to be peacemakers, which is your next fill-in. One of the places that we visited uh, in the Holy Land um, is a town called Bethlehem. Uh, you may have heard of it. Uh, the nights tend to be silent, you know, that sort of thing. Or oh, holy, if you prefer. Um, anyway, so among the sites to see in Bethlehem it is a working tree farm called the Tent of Nations. Now, as a result of all sorts of conflicts and treaties, Bethlehem is actually outside of Israel proper these days. And the Ten of Nations happens to be on the kind of land that the Israeli government sometimes likes to build what they call neighborhoods and uh, what the international community sometimes refers, uh, calls um, um, settlements right, in the occupied territory. And there's this Palestinian family living on this land, the Ten of Nations, and they've been on it for generations. They have paperwork uh, that articulates their ownership of this particular piece of land all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. But that hasn't stopped the Israeli government from taking sorts of many steps to, to sort of move them uh, along. For example, the family has been served eviction papers uh, under random rocks on the property, which is apparently not an uncommon thing that happens in that uh, part of the world. Um, on at least one occasion, the Israeli Defense Force showed up and, and just plowed under a valuable part of the orchard a few years ago, a TV show um, described what was going on there, and, and that resulted in a lot of people coming and, and, and coming through and visiting and helping out and um, otherwise being supportive. And, and, and the government decided uh, shortly thereafter, the government closed the street that you have to use in order to, to get there. So 
and, and cut off their water and their electricity. So in order for us to get there, we have to sort of walk our way sort of over some barriers and, and, and find our way there. And, and I was sort of curious about when we would arrive. And then it turns out it's not that hard to, to know when you're about to get there because you start to see these rocks that have painted on them these signs. And the signs, the words that are painted on them in, in all sorts of different languages is the phrase, we refuse to be enemies. Whoa. See, it turns out that the family that lives there, that Palestinian family, they're Christians. And no matter what the government throws at them, they have chosen to be peacemakers. Amen. We refuse to be enemies, they say. Amen. And that's what peacemakers do. At the end of our visit to the farm, we sat together in this cave that the family used to live in on the property, you know, generations and generations ago. And the owner uh, of the farm taught us a worship song in Arabic, so it was a Christian song in Arabic. Uh, and then he suggested singing what he called one of his favorite songs. And he proceeded to lead us in the song, We Shall Overcome. I need to make sure that you're with me. We're in a cave in Bethlehem with Palestinian Christians singing a song from the 1960s civil rights movement we shall overcome. And I have to tell you, when I showed up in Israel, I thought I knew whose side I was on. But in that moment, I had to rethink sides entirely. What came to me is this moment that's captured in the book, uh, in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua, where, where Joshua is preparing to lead his army against Jericho and and, and, and here's what it says uh, in the Bible. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? You see, many theologians believe that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. And Jesus reminds us there are, there's only one side. It's his side. It's the side of love. And as we sang, we shall overcome, it was obvious that that Palestinian Christian in Bethlehem in 2017 saw himself as committed to the same kind of peacemaking as Martin Luther King Jr. was doing in the 1960s. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was working to reflect God's love and his commitment to love people no matter what. You see, King wasn't working for civil rights only because it would be good for black people. He was working for civil rights also to free white people who were enslaved by living with hate 
and fear that fuels racism in the first place. Now, being a peacemaker requires strength. It, it requires the Holy Spirit to lead us away from our own fear and hatred, no matter the circumstances, and reflect Jesus's active forgiveness and compassion for the people God has put in our path. You see, beloved community is characterized by compassionate forgiveness. Last year, I was, um, as, a, as a student of Martin Luther King Jr., I was asked to participate on a panel for the city of Bellevue's um, celebration of his, of his life and work. And uh, as a way of trying to help people understand what, it, what, what that compassionate forgiveness actually looks like, I encourage the folks in the audience to find a racist and take them to dinner. Now, a lady on the panel with me said, uh, no, I'm not going to be going to dinner with any racists. She said, in fact, when I was a little girl, my dad taught me that if you run across any of those people, he taught me how to beat them up. It not only got applause from the audience, it's the only thing in the forum that got applause from the audience. I mean, here we are, we're talking about, we're celebrating one of the icons of nonviolence, a follower of Jesus who is trying to figure out how to be loved to other people. And the thing that the folks in the room want to applaud is when you're faced with something or someone you don't know, you have to know how to fight. That's not what Martin Luther King Jr. believed. Because he was a follower of Jesus, and that's not what Jesus taught. Now that brings us to what may be the most famous parable in the entire scripture. We tend to refer to it as the Good Samaritan. I am not going to do a message on the Good Samaritan because the one you want to hear is Martin Luther King Jr.'s. Uh, so again, sometime this week, maybe you want to go online and check it out, type in Martin Luther King Jr., Good Samaritan. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty good. But here's a quick reminder of what it says. In Luke chapter 10, an expert of the law is trying to justify the people that he loves and the people that, he's, that, that he doesn't love, right? He's trying to get Jesus to help get him off the hook, right? He's trying to justify himself. So he asks, yeah, I, I understand. I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but, but who's my neighbor really? And the answer that comes through this parable does not let him off the hook at all. Jesus' answer is, you have to love everyone. You see, at the time, Samaritans were ethnic outsiders. They were religious outsiders. Yet the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Jesus says our neighbors include those who are different than we are, and we are called to love them. And just in case we can still find a little wiggle room somewhere, later in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus eliminates all doubt. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, beloved community includes loving our enemy. Now, this is where the rubber, rubber meets the road, right? Like, if, if you're like me, when someone is attacking you, right, when someone's attacking me, I feel almost forced by the, by the rules and the values of this world to fight back, to, to attack or run away. See, the way our fallen brains work is at the place in your brain where fight or flight response lives is also the place in your brain where things like biases and prejudices and social judgment reside. This is the place where we both store our fears and our worldly default response to those fears. It's in the same part of your brain. But with Jesus' help, between the stimulus generated by the world's fallenness and, 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 and my automatic worldly response, right, generated by my fallenness, the Holy Spirit grows a space for me to choose to love. Setting me free from the automatic reaction, changing the dynamic by making me free to return love for hate, care for indifference, sweetness for pain, to lean in for a hug of connection instead of turning away from my own protection. You see, as a follower of Jesus, I'm free to choose. But do I? See, this, by, by, by choosing love, we are reflecting Jesus's eternal freedom to respond with love rather than being forced to react with some preconditioned or culturally appropriate retaliation. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us examples of ways that we are free to love, even though our brand or culture may call us to retaliate. In verse 39 of chapter 5, Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In verse 40, he says, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. In verse 41, he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. In verse 42, he says, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But he doesn't just tell us what freedom to love looks like. He went on to show us Looking at Jesus' final day before his, his crucifixion, he did all of those things for us. As the sinless Messiah was beaten for my sins, even though he had command of the Lord's army and had the power of the entire universe at his, his disposal, he did not resist. He freely chose to do what he calls us to do. He turned his other cheek. He freely put a cross on his back. And somehow I think it was the exact distance of the extra mile that he carried it to the place where he would be crucified. Amen. The soldiers wanted the shirt off his back. And he freely allowed them to have it. 
And even though we were yet sinners, and there's no way for us to beg or borrow or steal our salvation, Jesus didn't turn away from our need. As his last words sometimes are translated, he said, paid in full. You see, Jesus freely loves us. And he calls us to freely love. So, I mean, what does this all mean for you and me today? I keep trying to make this as clear to myself as I can. And, and maybe, maybe the way that I try to describe this to myself will be helpful for you. Jesus has freed me to love my neighbors and my enemies. Jesus has freed me to love people who practice the same religion I do, but practice it differently. Catholics, Palestinians, Jews, Mormons, Muslims, and people who have no religion at all. Jesus has freed me to love. Jesus has freed me to love people who are a race or ethnicity that's the same as mine and races and ethnicities that are different than me. Jesus has freed me to love. He's freed me to love a person who's actively promoting an agenda or program that's for me or a lifestyle or ideology that's a direct assault against mine. You see, Jesus has freed me to love. Jesus has freed me to love conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, Green Party, LaRouche, Birth Society, birthers and flat earthers, the ones who want a wall and the ones who want a welcome mat. You see, Jesus has freed me to love. Jesus has freed me to love members of the ACLU, the NRA, the KKK, and the NAACP. Whether they are up with people or down for black power, whether they want to send me back to Africa or liberate me from oppression, or whether they fall asleep each and every night wishing to see me hanging from the nearest tree, Jesus has freed me to love. And when we accept him and his freedom to choose love here on earth, we reflect that eternal beloved community to come. Because the Bible says on that day, every nation, every tribe, every tongue will be finally and fully free. We will no longer have to fight and run away from our earthly tendencies to fight and run away. The Bible tells us that in that beloved community, that heavenly beloved community, we will sing holy, holy, holy. And I can't wait. But I, but I, can't, I can't help but imagine that from time to time, I may want to lift up a shout of thanksgiving along with that singing. I may want to say thank you, Jesus, for letting us be on your side, the side of love. I may want to shout out, thank you, Lord, that we have finally and fully overcome. And I might even want to cry out the words of Martin Luther King to the king of the universe. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. We are free at last.
You see, on that day, we will be free to reflect the love of God. And I can't wait. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for making us free. We thank you for the the opportunity to reflect the love that you have poured out on us. Lord, I pray that over the course of the next week, as we're going about our business, as we we maybe reflect back on today, that we remember, that we think about, that we, we find ways to reflect your love to the people around us. Lord, we know that on that day, we'll be a part of an eternal beloved community. And Lord, we also know that we want heaven on earth today. So Lord, help us be beloved community. Help us be your beloved community. Give us your Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.